Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 62 for the week ending Monday, June 20th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masubu. Thanks for listening in. It's been an interesting week news-wise, what with Anonymous Africa attacking high-profile targets in South Africa, uh, the software developer training startup Andela landing $24 million from Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chang, and African Internet Group AIG rebranding itself along with its subsidiaries Jumia. That's all coming up when I get into this week's headlines, and later on in the show, I'll share part of a conversation I had with Matthew Lee, a plumber turned corporate executive who now oversees African operations for the German open source software firm SUSE. Now, we talked about how the OSS scene has cleaned up its act and gradually gone mainstream. And I asked him how well he thinks Africa is keeping up with the rest of the world in terms of producing world-class software solutions. We also spoke about why, in some respect, Microsoft might no longer be considered the arch nemesis of the open source software movement. That's all coming up later. But in the meantime, though, remember that if you've missed any of our past episodes, you can head to africantechroundup.com to catch up. And do give us a shout on social because we love hearing from you. Find us on Twitter at African Roundup and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. But before we go any further, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by FreshBooks. Now, FreshBooks is offering listeners of the African Tech Roundup a 30-day free trial to put their service to the test. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help freelancers and small business owners get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. Find out what all the fuss is about and try it out right now for free at gofreshbooks.com forward slash African Tech. And now it's on to this week's headlines. We start with two quick updates of stories we've been tracking. First up, uh, just last week, we reported on the deal MTN Nigeria has struck with the Nigerian government to settle the whole SIM card registration infringement issue that saw them fined by the Nigerian Communications Commission uh, some months ago. Now, following the most recent arrangement to reduce the fine levied against MTN Nigeria to $1.7 billion and adhere to terms such as listing the business on the Nigerian Stock Exchange, uh, Nigeria's parliament has since warned that it will proceed with an investigation into the legality of how the Nigerian Communications Commission negotiated down the original $5.2 billion fine originally imposed on MTN. Now, I did say last week that I wouldn't be surprised uh, if we hadn't heard the last of it, and so it carries on. We'll definitely keep you posted on this story as it develops. Now, secondly, here's a quick update on the battle between .connect Africa Trust and the ZA Central Registry over who has the right to administer the .africa top-level domain. Now, when we last reported on the matter, .connect Africa had uh, approached a U.S. court to secure an injunction preventing DCA from proceeding with the administration of the .africa domain. This after ICANN had given ZACR the nod to manage uh, the domain a while prior to that. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not quite clear on what it'll take for ZACR to finally shake off all the legal issues keeping them from custodianship of the .africa domain and Uh, in the same breath, what legal remedies remain at DCA's disposal to see to it that they don't. But I do know that at this point, it's beyond ridiculous that it's been over two years of this back and forth while Africa just sits here and waits. Here's to hoping we get access to that .Africa domain sooner rather than later. Now, in more progressive news, Africa Internet Group, AIG, a subsidiary of Rocket Internet, has decided to rebrand all its ventures, Jumia, 
Now, AIG expects this move will help consolidate its position as the largest e-commerce network on the continent. Uh, Their businesses span online retail, classifieds, travel booking, as well as food ordering with delivery across various African markets. So we should all expect the following name changes. Hotel booking site Javago to become Jumia Travel. The real estate site Lamudi to be rebranded Jumia House. Hello Food being renamed to Jumia Food. Car Classifieds Portal Kamudi to be known as Jumia Cars. Vendito to become Jumia Deals. And the job matching site Everjobs to become Jumia Jobs. Now, I guess this makes sense. I mean, Naspes did something similar in 2014 when it retired the Kalahari.com brand in favor of Take A Lot. Now, AIG is clearly looking to leverage the positive affinity they've built in the Jumia brand and, I guess, spread the magic to their other businesses. It will be interesting to see whether the change will impact the group's balance sheet and, more importantly, I think their profitability overall. So uh, we'll keep a close eye on that. Next up, six multinational corporations have joined forces to create what's being called Africa Working, which is expected to be a solution for youth economic empowerment on the continent. Now, Barclays Africa, Emerging World, Franklin Covey, Nod, uh, Microsoft, the Safal Group, and Syngenta have partnered to launch this initiative. Uh, the pilot is expected to roll out in Kenya and South Africa with plans to expand to other African countries uh, in due course. They plan to provide support in the form of learning, training, mentoring, internship, and job opportunities in industries across all sectors. It is an impressive list of companies, and um, and I guess the idea is to align their efforts and share learnings to build human capital on the continent in a sustainable way that perhaps hasn't been seen before. I'm excited about it. Uh, We'll definitely see in time whether that excitement is entirely warranted. To Nigeria now, where Andela is celebrating the nod it's just received from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, uh, which was founded by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chang following the birth of their daughter Maxima. Now, Andela is set to receive a $24 million investment from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with Andela, it's a startup that trains software developers in Nairobi and Lagos. They offer six months of intensive training for developers, which is followed by a two-week attachment at Andela's partner companies. The trainees then go on to work for those partner companies full-time once their training is complete. Now, the funding is part of Andela's Series B round led by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, along with GV, which, uh, of course, was formerly known as Google Ventures. Now, Andela has reportedly so far trained 200 software developers uh, over the last two years and received something like 40,000 applications from candidates all over the continent. Their aspiration is to train 100,000 developers over the next 10 years, and they plan to use the funding to not only train more engineers, but fuel expansion into more African countries. Come our way, Andela, come our way. Bring some of that magic with you. Really impressed with the work they've put out so far. And a nod from the the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is no doubt indicative of just how well put together and well executed the startup is. Congratulations all round. While staying with Mark Zuckerberg-related matters, it's more good news for Nigeria as Facebook will be sponsoring the first ever cyber exchange hackathon for app developers in Nigeria. Now, the hackathon is open to teams of university students and young professionals throughout Nigeria. Uh, They need to have less than two years experience. So this is really a grassroots initiative. Uh, The pre-qualifier registration closes on the 30th of August. So you still have some time to get it in. The final competition will be held on November 2nd and 3rd this year at the Landmark Event Center in Lagos. Now, qualifiers, uh, heads up, you'll be required to start brainstorming ideas and put together a team of up to four people. The competition will be geared towards seeing teams build solutions 
solutions in the cybersecurity space. So if you're interested in that, sign up and uh, get with the program. Speaking of cybersecurity issues, though, a group that's reportedly linked to the hacktivist collective Anonymous claims to have attacked websites belonging to the South African Broadcasting Corporation, the Oak Bay Investments Group, which is, of course, owned by the Gupta family, uh, as well as the Economic Freedom Fighters political party led by Julius Malema. Now, the collective, which calls itself Anonymous Africa, seems to have started with a simple Twitter poll on the handle at Zim for the win. They basically asked if SABC deserved Anonymous Africa's attention, which garnered 694 votes with 84% of people saying, yes, yes, they do deserve your attention. Following that, the group went ahead and gave the SABC some attention. <laughs> so look, they claim that they're out to make a statement against racism and corruption, and they've promised that they will continue to attack targets that violate their sense of justice. Now, quick shout out to iAfrican editor-at-large, Eric Mugendi, who, who's published a fascinating Q&A session he's had with a representative of Anonymous Africa. I do suggest you check it out at iAfrican.com. That's iAfrican with a K. But I want to know from you, Africa, you tell me, do you support Africa Anonymous and other such attacks on quote-unquote corrupt parties and corporations? Tweet us how you feel at African Roundup. Better yet, send us an audio comment via hello at africantechroundup.com. And if you're indeed a member of this group, we'd really love to hear from you personally. You could send us one of those cool muffled audio clips. That'd be so awesome to share. Uh, yeah, because we'd really like to understand perhaps a little more about what motivates you. And, and, and more than that, what you're hoping to achieve in the long term with these attacks. Now, finally, Uber is now available in the Tanzanian city of Dar es Salaam, and Dar becomes the 475th location of the taxi hailing service. And this follows recent Uber launches in Accra and Kampala that happened over the past two weeks. Now, Uber offering riders in new cities free rides has become standard launch protocol. Um, the company doesn't seem to be slowing down one bit. This despite resistance by local operators in some markets they've entered and despite speculation that a Safaricom-backed competitor called Little Cabs might rain on their parade. Uber does indeed seem to be well on its way to world domination. We'll just have to wait and see what, if anything, can stop them. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the week's biggest news. Uh, to close off the show, though, I'm going to play you a clip from a conversation I had with Matthew Lee, who, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, oversees African operations for the German open source software firm, SUSE. Now, he's well positioned to share insights on how well Africa is keeping up with the rest of the world in terms of producing world-class software applications, as well as giving us a sense of the key growth areas that could benefit from the increased rollout of OSS solutions. Take a listen. And so you probably are aware of some of the stereotypes around being a fan of open source software, right? Absolutely. So what would you say some of those stereotypes are and, and name some of the ones that might be true? Uh, open source software stereotype uh, maybe uh, would have been something along the lines of a guy uh, with long hair, you know, uh, pizza under the door, developer, um, socks and slops, uh, short hair, uh, short shorts and, you know, long jerseys, that kind of thing. You know, that probably would have been the stereotype of a Linux engineer uh, 10 years ago. And it was true, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I, I still encounter a couple of them when I'm uh, in discussions. So when did the when did this scene clean up then? Because uh, we're sitting in your offices and they look nothing like the scene you've just described. Lots of carpets, lots of 
uh, uh, very well dressed people, um, relaxed perhaps, but certainly well dressed. Um, halls with marble and <laughs> okay, so you get the picture. It's it's pretty corporate, pretty organized, well set up. When, when did this become a thing for open source software? That would probably be in the advent when open source software uh, moved from being a, a small time player in an enterprise, maybe covering a firewall or or something small on the side, um, to actually now becoming the uh, pinnacle of where mission-critical and business-critical computing needs to reside. Um, it has to reside on a, a mass-developed uh, platform, which gives that customer functionality. So at that point in time, uh, that's when I think that's when it would have probably happened. When, 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 when it, Linux started moving from the edge of the network right through to the pinnacle of the data center. And so I've pretty much lost track of all the acquisitions in the space. So and so buys this. So so let's talk about Sousa, the, you know, the company uh, you obviously head up operations for here on the continent. Uh, German-based, multinational, uh, owned by a, a London-based business, I believe, uh, with links to other businesses all over the world. Talk me through when that sort of organization started to form around around software, open source <laughs> software, and what the implications have been to it becoming a mainstream, uh, you know, to it going mainstream. So let's just take a step further back and go back to when SUSE actually incepted into, in 1991. Okay, that's when SUSE started. Um, we then uh, continued to provide uh, software and system development uh, to the market, really around the German Central Europe space. Uh, in 2004, I think it was mid 2000s. Um, Novell bought SUSE to provide a Linux kernel for Novell, okay, for Netway. Um, it was a, it was a, a symbiosis a relationship in terms of SUSE providing a kernel, but at the same time, open source outside of Novell was growing, um, and we've seen that in the likes of other open source companies uh, take take a, a big role as well uh, in this space in the enterprise open source space. Um, and then in 2011, Attachmate bought Novell. And at that point, they separated the open source uh, business from the proprietary, open, uh, proprietary uh, software business. And it was at that point that SUSE, uh, that SUSE really saw its growth. Um, it was we were given back to the community. We moved our headquarters back to Nuremberg in Germany uh, from the States. So um, it was at that point that SUSE kind of had its Phoenix rebirth uh, in 2011. Um, that's when Attachmate purchased uh, Sousa, uh, Novell. Then in 2014, Microfocus purchased Attachmate because it was showing such promising technologies and showing such promising growth. Um, people should see that as, as a positive. Uh, Sousa certainly sees it as a positive. We are now part of the Microfocus stable, Microfocus Inc., uh, which is the London-based company that you refer to. Um, but for all intents and purposes, we run our own our own independent organization autonomously with inside of the organization of the great organization of Microfocus. At what point does this sort of corporatization start to alienate the community uh, that has made open source software such a thing? It actually doesn't because we don't we don't have a one side relationship with the community. SUSE actually takes leadership positions on a lot of the foundations in the community where we feed back upstream as well. So not only do we take downstream and push out enterprise-grade software to customers, but we also feed back enterprise-grade requests into the community for further development. So let's talk about the growth of open source on the continent specifically. Have we kept up with uh, all the great things that are happening elsewhere in the world? 
Absolutely. Um, we actually, I think, are growing uh, in a higher percentages than the rest of the world, but that's obviously because we're coming from a lower base. Um, but absolutely, we are growing uh, within market, actually more than market rate. And so what sort of applications are you finding most popular on the continent in this space? Uh, retail applications, manufacturing re applications, finance applications, core banking applications. Um, if you can sum it up, it's most mission critical and business critical applications. Thinking back 10 years, um, it was Windows, 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 and maybe a little bit of <laughs> open source in some corner, dark corner <laughs> somewhere. Is the Windows factor still the greatest threat to widespread adoption of open source software? I wouldn't say yes, and I wouldn't say no. Um, Windows is actually, Microsoft actually, is a very large contributor to the open source community, right? So um, I don't know if many of your listeners knew that. But actually, at the same time as Microsoft is developing uh, and, and contributing code into the, into the open source community, Microsoft and SUSE also have an interoperability arrangement together. No one client is going to run just Windows or just a Linux environment. There's going to be Windows and Linux. And even in some cases, there might even be still some legacy Unix applications in the, in the, in the data center there. So there needs to be the case where there needs to be this interoperability uh, between the, the, the various vendors. And, um, yeah, I think with, uh, with the Azure platform launching with Microsoft, uh, more and more of those workloads are becoming Linux workloads in Azure, actually. So, um, yeah, we, we don't see it as a competition. We see it as a co-opetition. And so what do you make of the diehards in this debate who either very, very strongly uh, for proprietary software and what they consider to be the unparalleled uh, uh, standard of delivery that, you, that can be expected in that space relative to open source? And then, of course, people who, who feel totally different and just feel sometimes to extremes that everything should be free, this whole corporatization thing is wrong and counterproductive to getting uh, to, to progress on the planet – so what do, you, what do you make of those kind of de of that debate? So if I look at our skills program, um, a lot of the skills that are coming into the Linux space and open source space are actually previous uh, MCSEs, Microsoft Certified Engineers, uh, uh, Unix engineers that are coming across and adopting the new Linux skills base. Um, there's a very interesting report that your readers can go and look at. It's the, the Linux job report. Uh, you can Google that and go and get that from the Linux Foundation. It actually talks about how... Um, engineers or folks that are applying for position with inside of the open source space, if they've got open source Linux on their play, on their CV, actually positions them in a higher percentage to get that job. So, so that, that, that combats those kind of proprietary engineers. The, the, the diehard uh, open source, 100% open source, free and open source software guys, they're still going to be there, absolutely. Um, and that's our community. You know, we can't, that's the glory of open source. We cannot thrive without each other. It should be a movie about them. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> okay, so let's talk strategy in terms of the discussions you have in your boardroom here at SUSE. What, what would you say are the top three things that come up specifically around growth on the continent? Core Linux is still a major part of our business, so that's definitely part of our strategy. Um, in engaging partners and ecosystems, that is another part of our strategy, to grow that partner ecosystem, whether it be solution providers or system integrators or, or even appliance or application developers. Those are definitely uh, a key to our strategy going forward because we cannot deliver our product if it's not for these chaps' uh, involvement as well. Um, another part of business that SUSE is just moving into is the software-defined storage space. That's a very exciting space for us. It's, it's not been a, a Linux 
operating system space, but it's it really is a, a new driver. Um, adding to that as well, a strategy for SUSE is obviously to grow its management component and its cloud platform. Uh, we've got a wonderful cloud platform based on OpenStack. Um, and yeah, I think that is taking over uh, more and more private cloud environments in the local enterprises. Well then, thank you, Matthew Lee of SUSE for speaking to me. I'll be sharing the full conversation I had with Matthew in the coming weeks via my Twitter feed. Uh, you can follow me at Masugu Andile. Uh, the story of how Matthew went from being a plumber to a corporate executive at a leading OSS firm is quite a thing. So look out for that. Uh, but otherwise, once again, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is offering listeners of the African Tech Roundup a 30-day free trial to put their service to the test. To find out what all the fuss is about and to try it out for free, head straight to gofreshbooks.com forward slash African Tech. That's gofreshbooks.com forward slash African Tech. And that's the week's show, folks. Catch us again next week, Monday, on africantechroundup.com at 9 a.m. Central African time. For the moment, though, I'm Andile Masugu. Take it easy, Africa.